Momenta, Biennale de Limoges, is proud to present its 16th edition, The Life of Things, in Montreal, organized by curator Maria Wills Londonio, in collaboration with Audrey Genois and Mo Johnson. From September 5th to October 13th, 2019, the Biennial joins forces with 13 key venues in the art community for 13 exhibitions. The 2019 edition of the Biennial proposes a piercing look at the life of things, bringing into dialogue their consumerist and symbolic dimensions. The exhibition testifies to the different ways in which objects are experienced and what they tell us about how we think and live. 39 artists from 20 countries in 13 exhibitions. Momenta, Biennale de Limanche. We are proud to support Expo Chicago, the international exposition of contemporary and modern art. Each September, Expo Chicago opens the fall art season at Chicago's historic Navy Pier. Mark your calendars for the 8th edition, September 19th to 22nd, featuring artwork from over 3,000 artists from 135 leading gallerists, representing 24 countries and 68 cities. Dedicated to rigorous and challenging programming, the exposition hosts a dynamic roster of on-site programs, including panel discussions, uniquely curated site-specific projects, cutting-edge new media work, curator-led tours, and special exhibitions by renowned institutions. September in Chicago. Be here. For tickets and information, visit expochicago.com. Welcome to MoMA's The Podcast. We are your hosts, Lauren Wetmore and Sky Gooden. Lauren, who's on deck for this episode? This episode is Francis McKee. Uh, he's an Irish man living in Scotland. And when I invited him to be interviewed for this podcast, I told him that one of the reasons was because of what a great storyteller I think he is. Uh, but then Francis told me that living in Glasgow, he's had to learn to tone his Irish storytelling thing down a bit. Um, apparently the Scots don't go in as much for the kind of twists and turns and extrapolations and interpolations that the Irish really relish. Um, but this is exactly the sort of thing that I think makes talking to Francis so fascinating. How did you meet him? Uh, I was the assistant editor for a book that he published in 2017 called How to Know What's Really Happening. Um, so I was responsible for the footnotes and bibliography. The book was very small. It was a pocket book, really, probably no more than like 7,000 words. But in the end, there ended up being about 45 citations. So that's a citation every 150 words. Um, I'm looking at the book right now. Uh, the first citation is for a 2012 book by David Kaiser called How the Hippies Saved Physics. And then further down is a 2016 article in The Mirror called Scientists Say Your Enemies Smell Much Worse Than Your Friends or Family. <laughs> and then you have the first complete translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And then the last citation is for Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Which is appropriate. So that's a lot of ground to cover in a pocketbook. <laughs> I know, and I think the experience of speaking with Francis is very similar to this. His references and experiences are at once all over the place and also completely focused. Um, I find listening to him speak and reading his writing to be very joyful, which is, I think, what we're trying to find in this season. So I wanted to transition into the interview by quoting a text that Francis brought to my attention uh, that I think suits our subject matter to a T. It's from the Irish poet Seamus Heaney's Nobel Prize acceptance lecture in 1995. And though Heaney is speaking directly about poetry in the Irish troubles, it struck me as very true of any kind of art. So will you read it to us, Skye? Of course. There are times when a deeper need enters, when we want the poem to be not only pleasurably right, but compellingly wise. Not only a surprising variation played upon the world, but a retuning of the world itself. We want the surprise to be transitive, like the impatient thump, which unexpectedly restores the picture to the television set, or the electric shock, which sets the fibrillating heart back to its proper rhythm.
Okay, so I wanted to, maybe if you could just, for the record, introduce yourself and kind of how you describe <coughs> what it is that you do and who you are. That's a very good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, my name is Francis McKee. I have several positions all part-time. One, I'm director of CCA, uh, part-time. And secondly, I teach on the MFA in Glasgow School of Art. And thirdly, I do research in Glasgow School of Art as well. And then I have my own extracurricular practice, so to speak. So a kind of mixture of everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that mixture was one of the reasons why we were really excited to talk to you, that and your uh, your storytelling abilities. But um, <laughs> yeah, that you um, seem to maintain a very sort of like lively and far-reaching interest in culture at large, um, which I think is probably, well, is that why, um, like, is that variety why you, you are kind of able to sustain a curiosity and a positivity about art in general? I think so. Also, uh, my dark secret is that I've never studied art. (laughs) (laughs) I did English literature at university, which eventually by my PhD became history of medicine. And I moved sideways from history of medicine uh, into exhibitions about the history of medicine into contemporary art. So in a way, that wider interest in culture, I'm trying to come to art from that to to help me understand art uh, because I'm self-taught. Wow, I didn't know that. Is there... So one of the questions we're asking everybody, and I'll ask it to you here, is was there some kind of formative moment where you saw a work of art or you engaged with an exhibition in a way that made you realize that contemporary art was important and something you wanted to be involved with? Um, Possibly not an exhibition. Partly that's maybe because I was in Glasgow, which doesn't have or didn't have so many major exhibitions at the time. Uh, But certainly meeting artists, it was the conversation with artists, I think that made me realize because I was coming to art with some good sense of art history and a good knowledge of the Renaissance in the 17th century. But then meeting artists who are working today or in the 90s, working in the 90s, and they were really teaching me on the spot, on the ground, in front of a work, or explaining their work in a studio. So that, for me, was the kind of revelation of how you could think about things in that way, uh, rather than the ways I'd previously been taught. And the, the conjunction of the two, that got me excited. So say Christine Borland, who was working with uh, skeletons, she was working with the last human skeletons you could buy in the UK before they were outlawed as unethical. And she was using the, the head of one forensically with the police to recreate the head, to try and reestablish the identity and using forensic medicine to try and find out as much of the history of that person from the the evidence on the bones, uh, and then to cast the face in bronze. That was all connected. Art is definitely in there, but also all of these other aspects of real life, the forensic medicine and the police and the trade in bones and uh, the reasons why that exists. All of those things were involved. So I could I could see art that was connected to the real world in a very whole sense. Um, Douglas Gordon, the same, where he was looking at uh, shell shock, 1914 to 18, First World War, and I was working for the Wellcome Trust at this point. I could see shell shock from the, the history of psychiatry point of view, and I was working on the history of psychiatry at the time, but I could also see what he was doing with, doing with it in art terms. So those kind of overlaps between how that became art but where it was coming from in the real world, that's what excited me. And I thought I could actually be part of this or contribute to this. Or, and it was hugely exciting in a way that maybe more academic reference of the painting wasn't. Right. So it's is it an idea of immediacy rather than history? Yeah, there was almost... First there was... <laughs> Glasgow doesn't really have a great history. <laughs> <laughs> Even Scotland doesn't have a great history of art. It's very discontinuous, I think. Hmm. Um, so 
they weren't really look, if they were looking to history it was maybe they were stealing a little bit from New York conceptualism they were mm-hmm. stealing from you know Europe they were stealing a bit from here and there but really there was no history so they were kind of making it up on the spot and I was certainly making it up on the spot you know kind of um, coming inside with pretending to know or being offered opportunities that I had to go off and then find out how to work with them because I had no experience. Um, so everyone was bluffing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that let a lot of the real world in and the way Glasgow was approaching art through environmental art, for instance. They talked about uh, 50% uh, 50% of the work is context coming from John Latham and that notion of the placement group in London. So they were thinking, well, the real world is 50% of the context. Hmm. And that was in a post-industrial city where industry had just collapsed entirely. And the Industrial Revolution, which really kind of had a lot of its roots in Glasgow, was over. And But there was this real sense of the world outside and how art had to relate to it in some way. Um, there wasn't a great division, a kind of ebony tower feeling that sometimes you get an out of theory, for instance, which just separates the artist from the real world. Um, that was very, you know, very, the two things were pushed against each other and abutted on each other in quite a stark way. Do you feel like that division is still um, maintained or important? I think in Glasgow it is partly because a lot of those people have ended up teaching. Hmm. But also Glasgow, Glasgow's reasonably unique as a city in some ways in that it has never managed to gentrify very successfully <laughs> because it's just not rich enough. Right. There are pockets, but really it's not as successful. So the real world intrudes on a daily basis. Hmm. Um, kind of the real world that maybe is vanishing elsewhere in terms of mainstream, everything being Starbucks, you know, that kind of that's still broken up a lot in Glasgow. Hmm. So I think people coming from overseas, there's a sort of sense of reality being still right in your face and an encouragement to address it coming from the art school and from the galleries and the art community. So that, that I think, is still quite exciting here. Have you seen that in any other cities? Um, maybe Detroit. Hmm. Certainly Detroit has had exactly the same trajectory of high industry collapse. Um, I'm trying to think what to do with it. I'm actually saying music, for instance, like techno coming out of the end of that industrial period and maybe Poland as well. All the peripheral cities. Mexico, which you know is vast, but in art terms for a long time was peripheral. Um, those kind of cities where there's a, there's a huge dose of reality that you really have to confront if you're going to make art. Right. And it would be silly not to. Um, so, yeah. And it seems like you have really made the decision to stay in these kinds of peripheries or to maintain a tie to areas where you can access the real world, as you call it. Yeah, totally. I think there was a point where I had to make that decision. But it was an easy decision because going to those other more central points, everybody does what everybody is meant to do. Hmm. <laughs> Models of good practice, curators doing the same thing as other curators, artists all doing the right thing. It's incredibly boring. <laughs> <laughs> and there's very little chance to do anything else because you're in a system where it's quite competitive and people want to advance and you advance by doing the right thing. Right, by towing the line or producing something that's recognizable as art. Yeah, so I think people are easily evade some of the other more interesting challenges. And there's space in the margins, because nobody wants you in the margins. There's an invisibility and an irrelevance to some extent, which I find really exciting, um, because that's when you can do what you want. What um, do you mean nobody wants you, like there isn't an interest in kind of participating in art? or? I think there isn't a wider interest. We could do shows in CCA, or the only thing that will get reviewed, for instance, beyond... Glasgow will be Glasgow International, perhaps. Right. Um, but there just isn't an interest through the rest of the year. There isn't, because of the geographical awkwardness of Glasgow, there isn't a constant traffic all the time of people coming in. There's very few commercial sales uh, within the city. Mm-hmm. So there's 
there's a sort of uh, a general benign neglect of Glasgow because of its peripheral status. <laughs> but that's something that, that you like about it. It's funny, in talking to a lot of people, the kind of opposite of that comes through, like this idea of wanting to be in, in places where there is a connection to culture or like an interest in having a dialogue about culture that is broader kind of societally, so with people that are not necessarily within that kind of elite structure. Yeah. Well, I think I would say Glasgow can be better for that than going to those more central places hmm. um, because those more central places have a more homogenous view of culture hmm. um, and everyone's saying the same thing so what people say in New York will be replicated in London will be replicated in Germany whatever it's hmm. there's a, a sense of hom- homogeneity mm-hmm. uh, that is so predictable yeah here you, you are going to get culture but it's not going to be necessarily art culture and if you try to replicate some of the art discourse here, um, you're liable to get punched in the face. (laughs) 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 You know, people have much less tolerance and see through a lot of the the bad faith associated with that. Um, You know, where people are talking about emancipatory art and emancipatory theory, um, but clearly are within a very elite, slightly obscene uh, art bubble. Yeah. So I think that there's less tolerance for that kind of uh, you know, suffrage in Glasgow. Hmm. Do you have an example of, of that? Um, well, I can only think of people who came in and said things. <laughs> I think someone came in and said about a curator who was earning something like £200,000 a year and doing some work on the side that was considered unethical. Right. Um, that, well, they would have to do that because they're only earning two hundred thousand. <laughs> you know, that's, oh my God. that silenced the room. Yeah, uh, you know, just in terms of how out of touch people in that central cosmopolitan part of the art world could be with the realities of the rest of the art world. You know, most of the global art world does not. Yeah, like that, but they can be completely blind to that. Um, so something like that where you think, well, how do we really have a conversation here with someone who thinks that's a serious, urgent problem? So what are the kinds of serious or urgent problems that you're seeing in your, I mean, it can be in your practice or in your, your, your work, your daily work at the CCA? Possibly all of, some of the things that are kind of now universal, like the, the whole question of race and um, representation and sexuality and representation and identity um, and overwhelmingly at the moment uh, climate change. Yeah. Um, there's obviously more local politics, especially in Scotland at the moment with questions of independence and Brexit, etc. But really something like climate change is really beginning to dominate that whole discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and Glasgow's changing rapidly as a city where not like London, that say maybe has already had a very mixed population for a very long time. Glasgow has just really in the last decade begun to sort of uh, change in that way. The demographics are changing rapidly. Hmm. Uh, with the huge, it's one of the largest places uh, for migrants in you know within the UK, um, and that's having a noticeable effect. And that's really interesting in seeing what's coming up through that and how to artists and art institutions begin to try and work with that. And I think it's different than, say, America, where, you know, there's very institutional things with very institutional boards, and I think you can change more rapidly here and you can respond. There's maybe more excitement about what could change, hopefully. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's great to hear you talking um, with such positivity about Glasgow, because I think one of the, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to start having these conversations was so that we could start talking about art in a productive way or at least find examples of that productivity. Tell me about your practice and about what what is kind of exciting you at the moment. (laughs) Deeply embarrassing. Mostly bluegrass music. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So I'm researching bluegrass and new grass, (laughs) Hmm. The, the more progressive movement that began in the 70s. Um, but I'm looking at that. I, I began, I'm trying to write a book about uh, Irish traditional music. 
And this was following a book which was about spiritualism and protest. And now I'm working on Irish traditional music. <clears throat> but I think Irish traditional music turns out, under the pressure of life today, to really be about what is traditional and what is modern and new and how almost the indigenous question of how real or authentic is an indigenous culture. Hmm. And certainly in Irish culture, the answer is kind of heresy perhaps, but maybe it's not very uh, traditional at all. It's not pure. It's hmm. a constant sort of adding and discarding of elements that are called traditional. When you don't need something anymore, it's ejected and something new is added and 10 years later, that's traditional. So it's a constant process of change that is in no way fixed and in no way represents some essential Irishness, for instance. It just, just isn't there. Um, but there is something that was pointed to as traditional, and then people argue that you can't add this because this is too modern. Um, so I'm really interested in that, and that seems to sort of feed back into the world in general. And for some reason, that got me to bluegrass music, hmm. uh, which is really coming some extent from Irish music as well, from Scottish music and English folk songs. And looking at the, the same thing happening in America with that, and looking at, say, the history of the banjo, <laughs> it gets very unfashionable and boring here. <laughs> the, banjo, <laughs> the banjo being really an instrument that comes over um, on the slave ships. Huh. Uh, it's an African instrument. It's brought over by, you know, people who have been taken to America as slaves. And it is you know, then as an instrument in America and it then sort of begins to have a different life um, as it also gets taken on uh, by poor white farmers um, and it eventually is abandoned by black population because it looks like it's too associated with a certain kind of um, stereotype and caricature and has only recently then begun to come back. So I look at people like Rhiannon Giddens who is a black American banjo player who speaks Gaelic. Oh, wow. <laughs> is recording a lot in Scotland and Ireland, but also looking at the African origins and going back and reconnecting with the African origins of the banjo. So it's, it's a deeply unfashionable subject and music, but within it, there's all sorts of really interesting connections in and out. And there's a virtuosity aspect to it as well. Most of the players very competitive in terms of being a virtuoso, uh, playing the banjo and the speed and the skill um, with which it's played. So there's something like that happening at the same time as the kind of stereotypes of it being hillbilly, etc. So it, it can kind of unpick something that looks like very fixed areas. And the same with the Irish traditional thing, that it's, it's really unpicking this notion of essentialism or nationalism or we are this and you aren't. Um, that it's the constant source of interaction with different cultures. So it's, it's kind of morphed into something much bigger than I expected. <laughs> Possibly even buying buying a banjo. <laughs> but I think it'll help. Um, I'll be very bad at it. But doing the spiritualism and protest, I, I did uh, training in how, you know, how to be a medium. Um, really? Yeah, I was a very bad medium. Um, but it put me on the inside of the thing to be able to see and understand how it worked without being on the outside, without going with the stereotypes, without kind of making judgments, but to sort of be inside it. Even if I'm bad at it, I understand how it works and how other people are using it. Right. So I found that really useful, and it just takes away my any kind of superiority in my position. Yeah. And that's very helpful as well. So I'm kind of interested in how to... And the mediumship taught me very... I'm very stupid... It took me, eventually I realized that the whole point is to put yourself to one side and let everything come through. Mm. It took me so long to realize that with my egotism. But it also connects back to running an institution and the idea that it could be a medium and that you try to put yourself on the curatorial stance to one side and channel or allow other things to come through and support them and give them a voice rather than you egotistically looking to your voice or curatorially looking to your program so that it has had an impact then back on the CCA. I was thinking just as you were saying that about 
running an institution that it seems like your sort of research strategy of inserting yourself into a situation is echoed in this area of wanting to maybe research how contemporary art functions. And by, you know, running this institution, that is that action of inserting yourself into it? Yeah. It is, I'm ironically inserting myself into it as on the margins that we try to actually open up the space as much as possible and to allow other curatorial voices or to allow any other voice. So the way we operate is people can come in through our open source program and ask to use the space and we give them the space for free and they program themselves or they curate their own program. Hmm. So really, we have no, after we say yes, we have no control over what they're doing. Hmm. But it means a lot of different communities can come in and then program themselves into those spaces. Um, and we support that and we kind of look at the overall scheme of how that's working. So anything too mainstream, we would generally discourage because that can happen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Politically dangerous, we would also you know, push away. Um, but that leaves most of the world. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and it leaves a lot of things that don't have a place to go otherwise. Um, so you're actually encouraging, you know, giving a platform to voices that maybe can't find a place, yeah. a location in the city. Are you finding um, that there's a, a sort of pattern or issues that keep on coming up in the proposals that you receive that makes it clear that there are um, there's no place for a certain kind of practice or a certain kind of history? Uh, yes, definitely. There's, there are some things that change and go by fashion, for instance. Yeah. Uh, so a few years you've got this and a few years you've got that. But there are other things that are coming up. For instance, uh, going back to questions of uh, migration. Yeah. Uh, the Roma community have just taken an office in CCA. And for them, that's quite a big step in terms of their integration into the city. Um, they would like to have an office with us because it validates them in some way, but it also gives them a space, you know, something that looks more mainstream. Um, but what they're bringing in is their own program, and their own program then is becoming part of the culture or in, injecting itself into the culture. So things like that where there's, they weren't, they didn't have many other options, maybe institutionally. Mm. It probably would have been a community centre somewhere on the south side of Glasgow. So it's actually making a space that looks, you can play with the, the poshness of the space. <laughs> mm. It looks as if it's in an institution and you can hand that over to someone and that kind of gives them a different kind of power as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's about those kind of swaps with people um, and then they can actually, so again it happens with uh, I suppose kind of uh, gender in a big way. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe five different queer festivals a year and hopefully we're becoming recognised as a safe space um, you know, for queer activities, queer art, festivals. And again we stay out, we give them the space and we support that and defend it and uh, stay out of it at the same time. Right. Uh, but that means there is a space then that can be recognized and sort of you know, recognized as home to some extent or there's a sense of ownership that we hand over. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what we're trying to do and we realize it's complex and even doing that, there's a power in being able to hand it over. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're handing over part of the building really uh, on a constant basis. So as long as those things remain urgent and those groups and those communities want to use it, it's there to be used. Mm -hmm. um, we're also possibly least qualified at times to actually take on these issues. Hmm. Um, you know, how could one team of people, I said team, we're talking, you know, two to three people, hmm. um, be knowledgeable in everything from African art through to queer art through to, you know, uh, abstract expression, you know, it's like, it's, right. it's, uh, it's kind of this notion that the curator can do everything, I think, uh, and should be in charge of everything, I think is, is slightly dangerous, more, more than slightly dangerous. Um, so I think we, we talk a lot about that. We, we try to even, when we're curating, we, in our galleries, uh, to hand over that or to work in collaboration. So sure we're talking about at the moment, there's no sense of 
who is the curator, um, really. Um, we haven't figured out a curator, if there is a curator. <laughs> Possibly a curator would actually be a real hindrance to the whole thing. Uh, we did a show in November around an artist from Prague, and there were, I think there were seven or eight curators involved in one exhibition. But there's so One many... exhibition of one artist's work? Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Essentially, it became meaningless. Yeah. In that no one was actually curating the exhibition saying this happened because there were many divisions and spaces within. So it, that whole notion of the curator kind of collapsed a bit there as well, which is nice. Hmm. to the artist. Do you consider yourself a curator? Um, not really. I think I was. <laughs> At one point I sort of blipped into it and maybe I blipped out of it again. <laughs> Sometimes I kind of, I still am. Um, it's part Probably because if I'm now doing, uh, taking the role of director on three days a week, you right. can't seriously curate shows at the same time. Um, so you have curators who are curating shows, and then it's their program. So it would suddenly be this awful thing that just appears and blows a hole in the side of someone's program. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that doesn't seem fair. But I have my own practice to be creative at the side. Right. Creative with the directing on a much more macro scale of, you know, letting people in to use the space and sort of moving everything aside and open source. So, um, I don't know, maybe curating the organization or the building right. would be a better way of thinking what I do. Yeah. Uh, so, I think letting people move out. Even the notion of the curator is becoming a slightly cloudier kind of notion for me. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what a curator is needed for anymore. <laughs> to put it boldly, uh, artists, you know, there's, you can trust an artist to do it themselves as well, or to work with support from the curator. Yeah. And often, it's the curator must have some blinding idea that the artists then have to enact for the curator. Um, that you know, especially with biennales, um, the whole biennial concept of the idea of this biennial is, you know, whatever, tractors in the 1930s and all the artists selected have to respond in some way and it's all meant to coherently hold together. Yeah. And, you know, nothing wrong with art in its own as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm very sort of, not, I'm not sure if I'm old-fashioned or ahead of the curve on it. Um, yeah, the curatorial framework is um, beginning to looks slightly dull and shaky. Yeah. Well, I guess it, because it sounds like you feel it doesn't, it's not serving the art or the artists. Yeah, it isn't. It's, it's too much about the curator's ideas. And I really just want to engage with an artist directly. And there's so many obstacles at times to curate, uh, engaging with an artist. Huh. Like what, what are the obstacles that you find uh, today? Um, well, first is the shop. <laughs> you got to get past the shop, then you got to get past the invigilators, and then you got to get to the work and <laughs> they tell you what the show is about in case you weren't intelligent enough to figure that out. <laughs> and then you get to the art, and then there's a big thing telling you what that piece is about. And then there's even a video telling you what the piece is about. <laughs> maybe a man or a woman who comes around to maybe have a talk at four o'clock to everyone to ex explain the whole thing. Everything is so explained. Yeah. Uh, Quite often the explanation being that it's ambiguous and you have to figure it out yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like no one's actually thinking about what they're saying or doing there. Right. And that kind of stark um, experience with the work when you don't know what's going on and you don't even know what the name of it is and there's no one to tell you what it means. Uh, that's really exciting. Can you tell me about an experience that you had like that? Oh, many. There were several museums that were great before before the designers got in and fixed them. Um, where there, were, there were no labels, there were just these enigmatic objects. Um, thinking of. I remember um, personally having an experience, or one of the more formative experiences of really falling in love with museums, or, um, having that kind of a feeling of a, a magic happening in a museum was definitely at the Welcome Collection in London, where you're just looking at kind of the most bizarre things and they're, you know, they're organized based on somebody's collection. But for me at the time, that wasn't clear. So it was just kind of a whole bunch of 
very strange objects brought together in a darkened room. And there was a real kind of feeling around it that wasn't explained. It is. And I used to work for the Welcome uh, Trust at the time, uh, back in the 90s, when a lot of the things were still kind of mysterious hmm. and possibly hadn't even been indexed or considered. Wow. <clears throat> and that was very exciting, going to their stores and seeing the works in cabinets, um, hundreds of things, um, and people trying to figure them out and trying to you know, wonder, could they be historical and could they speak historically like an historical document? There was a moment before objects were considered historically relevant in that sense as well. And that what was do you mean good. by that? Well, for more standard conventional history, said by the late 80s, early 90s, it was the document. The document was everything. You looked at the documents, the documents had evidence, you analyzed the evidence. And an object was this weird, mute thing, as far as historians were concerned. couldn't be dealt with in the same way. It wasn't trustworthy. It had aesthetic aspects that just were confusing. <laughs> and I think the welcome at that period had an awful lot of historians and people who came from the wrong professions because there was no such thing as a medical historian. Mm-hmm. So they had a whole faculty full of people who were making up a kind of genre of academia um, and looking at objects and thinking, well, this object can tell me things and being slightly heretical about the power and the value of an object as an historical document as well as something. Um, just maybe as anthropology was changing at the same time and how people would look at an object and think this isn't just uh, a beautiful African aesthetic mask, but actually maybe it's a tool, maybe it's a religious object, and maybe it needs to be treated in a completely different way than it being presented as this beautiful piece of art when it actually isn't art at all. Um, so there was that change happening. And that was really interesting in terms of how they would present objects and think about presenting objects. And I think it's continued through into their galleries now as well. Hmm. Yeah, I get quite excited about their... They were willing to accept a certain ignorance of the object and, and the power of the object before it gets kind of uh, conceptually interpreted. Right. And I think that is interesting with art. You asked me, did I ever encounter it? But I encounter it every week when I go to teach. Hmm. <laughs> Someone will show me something and they'll go up and hit this. And they're not quite sure what they've done. <laughs> and you're not quite sure what they've done. <laughs> and there's a panic about what am I going to say about this? Because I've never <laughs> seen this before in the world. You know, and the artist isn't sure either. And so there's that wonderful moment where you begin to talk and you begin to try and figure out what it might be. Um, and that that's fascinating. You're looking at totally, you know, kind of newborn creatures that don't have names. <laughs> <laughs> like God, you get to name them. <laughs> <laughs> or not, mostly not. <laughs> but it is strange. It's a strange, it's a really raw encounter. Um, and artist studios like that as well. There's so little uh, mediation when you're in an artist studio. Um, and there's so little... For most artists, so little curating of the stuff within the space. Um, if this is stuck in a table, then that's stuck in a table. Um, and that is fascinating because it's so open. So I really, I really get a kick out of that. I'm talking to artists as well. Yeah. Hmm. Do you worry that maybe the the structure of being in school or the structure of have of the kind of performance of a of a studio visit ruins that that sort of rawness that you are so keen to encounter. It depends what you do with it when you're there. Huh. <laughs> if you kind of give them a signed seal prescription at the end that says this work is whatever, you've probably killed it. Flap the nizzle, throw it in the bin. Um, but if you all sit there and kind of go, I'm stumped. Um, <laughs> It can generate a it can generate conversations, and quite often it will generate conversations that aren't necessarily about it, but begin to indicate the potential it has. Um, and you know, rather than being directly focused on it and saying it's this, it's that, it will generate other links and connections and references to other artists' past, peers, and you know what's happening in practice and the, the outside world, and that begins to give you a sense of how this is working. You know. It's kind of like a machine sitting there that's suddenly generating music, and you go, "This is really exciting." 
it's the same with a piece of art that suddenly it's generating conversations about other things. You think, yes, there's something here that this is really working. But without coming to a conclusion, conclusions are terrible. <laughs> how do you think that that happens? I mean, is it is it a magic or an alchemy? Like, how does how does an artist create that instrument? Uh, good question. Um, I don't know. I think it depends on their kind of antenna, what they're what they're taking in. And what they're looking—they're looking at other artists working. With. They're looking at art history. They're probably reading some stuff as well. They're looking at the real world and they're looking at the news and they've got their daily experience. And they sort of mash all of that together and take parts that they need for different works. And the material itself will begin to dictate something. So all of those things are at play, and it depends on the artist whether they go for all of it or whether they narrow it down to a very small focus based just on the materials and your response to the material mm-hmm. um, or to the wider world. So I think it will depend on each artist's filter of what they filter in and filter out when they're making the thing, the object or thing. So, yeah, it's, it's very mixed, but it depends on their... Uh, maybe, again, like music is a good metaphor. It kind of does it begin to sound right? Does it begin to resonate? Does it feel like it's you know, kind of slightly more open-ended and things can come and go and it can generate energy. Hmm. I think in that way, it's very intuitive as well at some point. I think the works that are completely conceptually thought through, it's usually a killer. There has to be a sense of intuition that there's something that can't be described by words. Um, And that, because it's a visual language, it can be described by words. Maybe just give it up and buy a pen or a computer and... (laughs) But, you know, it's, an, it's a thing, and it's that experience with the thing uh, that's absolutely fascinating, that it's not articulable. articulable. Uh, it can't be articulated just within words. Hmm. For instance, I was reading uh, David Sally. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, he came up with a comparison that I sometimes get excited about, which is sports writing. For <laughs> 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 a critic writing about art. The sports writer is a good example because you're looking, you're experiencing something physically that's happening in real time. Your experience of it and your emotional experience, your intellectual experience, your memory of it later, it's kind of active. It's happening in front of you and it's a, and you keep moving around and it keeps changing as you move around, for instance, in a gallery. So it's that kind of account of the experience of this thing and your encounter. That is quite exciting. Hmm. Do you find that, um, I mean, do you read art criticism and do you find that it's engaging with art in, in that way, ever? Yeah, I read a lot. I mean, some of it is and some of it isn't. Yeah. Some of it has come sometimes, as most depressing, someone <laughs> simply <laughs> referring to a theory. Yeah. You know, they find a theory that fits um, and that's it, that's, it's over. Or they are writing with the gallery and the commercial side in mind and the magazines in mind mm-hmm. and are afraid to put a foot anywhere too dangerous. You know, so that they're the depressing ones, but the most exciting ones are the ones that are kind of totally open to the encounter and think, where can this take me next? And how you know, how do I actually respond to this? And why should I respond to this? And you know. That openness, <clears throat> where, you know, as, as Sally was saying, the thing of sports writing is one example. But his was interesting, that book, How to See, in general. That's something I have a bit of a crisis with at the moment in a nice way. Hmm. Um, I went to see some 17th century paintings that um, are generally kept on the Isle of Butte or outside Glasgow. Hmm. They were been shown in Glasgow and I went to see them. And there was a Poussin and there was something else, and something else, all Dutch 17th century. And a really... I wasn't sure what to do in front of some of them. (laughs) (laughs) Like physically, you mean with your own body? Physically, where should I stand? How long should I stay? (laughs) Um, Has it worked? Have I got it? (laughs) There's a bloody push sign at the end of, you know, (laughs) is the frame important? You know, there's so many things I think, do I know how to look at something? Um, That's, that's I take that as exciting and positive. That's, I have to think, well, why am I bothering to look at this? Why am I here on a Sunday morning 
Um, should I be 12 feet back? Should I be right in? Should I give it another 20 minutes? Yeah. Should I steal it and keep it for 50 years in a bunker? <laughs> How long is an, you know, especially those 17th century things, I guess you're meant to buy them and take them home and live with them. So presumably that gives them 50 years to slowly explode in your life rather than five to seven minutes, which seems you know, that's a ridiculously long amount of time down the gallery. Um, so, yeah, time, the time of seeing is always important. Have you had an experience of that, that looking, working, and what did it feel like? Um, yes, I'm trying to think of a specific example. I can't, but when it does, it totally floors you. Um, but Janine and Tony, her work probably revolutionized my life. Um, just looking at the heads uh, that she did, going way back to the 90s, those chocolate and lard heads huh. of her face, and that she'd made them, and there were replicas of her in bust and chocolate and busts and lard, and then she had defaced them by licking them. So huh. she defaced her own portrait. And conceptually, you can think of feminism, you can think of all sorts of things, you know, put a good feminist framework around that work. But you turn up to see them, and they just smell so good. <laughs> <laughs> and you're standing there going, I want the chocolate, I want to eat this. Um, before you can be all conceptual and feminist and everything around this, theoretically, as a framework, your body is saying, eat it. <laughs> yeah, that desire to consume something. Yeah, and she knows that, and it's totally politically incorrect. Yeah. In a sense of it, but it also undercuts the whole theoretical thing and adds another layer that's about intuition and the body and visceral response that's pre-conceptual. Um, so something like that can be incredibly exciting and confusing. It's that confusion that you don't know what to do and have you made a mistake and should you tell someone and confess <laughs> so that you feel like this? Um, and she knows all of this and that you have to go and sort out that confusion, which is almost insoluble. Mm. So it's about mm, remaining in that, st that state of confusion rather than trying to reconcile it through understanding. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not a good fan of understanding, uh, <laughs> like conclusions. Um, I don't think the world works like that. <laughs> so something, something that makes you aware of that again, because everything is pushing towards outcomes and definitions and conclusions and decisions and lack of ambiguity. Uh, works that open up just how complex any decision or any perception or understanding can be are really useful these days, especially a very political and very, you know, it's like hitting a hammer on a piece of wood for everything now. It's very, very simple. This is bad, this is bad, this is good. Yeah. Um, and especially when you get to identity, it can be brutal in its kind of reductiveness. Yeah. And I don't find identity that easy at all. Um, but it's often reduced, especially when it gets into a fierce argument. Uh, it gets ridiculous in terms of the how reductive it can become uh, an essentialist. So it's kind of getting away from that, which brings it back to the Irish music, something that cannot be easily you know, resolved. Um, that's kind of what I enjoy about. I'm thinking, no, I've never been able to go back to a position of knowledge and understanding. Hmm. Were, do you, were you at some point in that position? I think on a regular basis. Ah, okay. <laughs> on a daily basis, the world is um, attempting to make us uh, more and more kind of think like that. Yeah. There's a pressure there culturally, um, which is incredibly reductive. Uh, you know, through television, through a lot of films, through the internet, um, through a lot of writing as well, where everything is being simplified almost to sell it faster or to consume it faster. Yeah. And the complexity of the situation is completely lost through that um, and really not kind of coming through at all. And there isn't space for that in a lot of places anymore. Um, even in the article, sometimes they're very complex situations that are not really the, the potential to actually discuss them fully just isn't there anymore. It's, it's too reduced as well. Because there isn't time or there isn't willingness or... There's, there isn't time, and, and yeah, you're right, there isn't time, and there isn't willingness. 
and people want uh, more spectacular results sometimes. Yeah. So even with the recent Whitney thing, I was enjoying the, the variety of protest responses. Right. So that some people left. Some people said, oh, I'm not leaving because I shouldn't leave. Um, one person said, well, I'm leaving, but it makes no difference because I did the work as a performance. Right. So, you know, and other people saying, well, this is more complex. And I was thinking about Glenn Legon, who wasn't in the show, but somewhere popped up to say he wasn't giving back his Whitney card. <laughs> <laughs> Did he really? And I was thinking, why not? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of complexities to unpack there that still haven't, apart from the reporting itself, um, which has been good through, say, uh, hyperallergic. Yeah. But to actually get to, uh, let's discuss the multitude of responses here. Um, and the wider response about, well, what do you do about all boards rather than just this one person? Yes. That that just moves on to the next subject next week. Yes. Something else. Yes. And so to actually stick with one and say, well, if you want to change this, you need to stick with that one thing. That I kind of miss sometimes, and that's what I like. And, you know, the art that really excites me throws me into that situation of seeing the complexity. I think you need to stick with this. Um, despite all the things we're talking about, I'm incredibly optimistic about art. Hmm. And I get totally excited about it. And it's, it's not because when you look at the wider issues of boards and protests and whatever, then it gets you know, more depressing. But if you look at the stuff being produced in art schools, you look at the stuff on the ground in art communities, and you look at what's happening at another level beyond the official mainstream, it's so exciting. And they don't really need or care about the mainstream to some degree. Um, but there is a real, you know, that, I have total faith in that, and hmm. that's probably what keeps me alive, you know. <laughs> Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. We would like to thank Francis McKee for his contribution to this episode. If you would like to inquire about advertising opportunities or other forms of support, please contact me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca. This has been episode 12 of Momus the Podcast.